podcast world. We're back at you with part two of our sit-down discussion with fighter pilot Brian Moore, now commercial pilot. Hope you guys enjoyed part one. In between there, we actually had Brian's lovely wife, Rachel Moore, who is the sister of my best friend, Wade Platt. She was also a fighter pilot, and she talked about January 2020 taking her Finney flight, which is short for her last flight. We're going to learn more about that as we continue our discussion with Brian. But what a family, huh? They both they have kids together. They've been married for several years now, met overseas as pilots in our military, protecting our freedoms. And uh, I'm just excited to continue this discussion with Brian. We left off with your first takeoff in the fighter jet. We talked about how you pulled down the canopy and you were a bigger guy, so it was a little bit awkward with your shoulders and moving around and getting adjusted in there. Just recap that a little bit, Bryce, like how fast you're going, where you're at, and and what it, what had led up to that and what you were feeling as you were finally getting ready to take your first flight in a jet. As far as, you know, what the, I think what we let off with the uh, the F-16, yeah, the first first time you're taking, you know, a flight in the F-16, it's, you know, it's a little bit surreal. Because, you know, up to that point, there's been several years of training that's just gone to that one point. And then now you're seeing kind of the light at the end of the tunnel as far as finally getting into a uh, to a fighter jet. You know, just like, oh, man, it's, this is actually really happening. You know, so a lot of it is uh, is, is very surreal. Um, and it's, you know, like we were talking about earlier, there's just so much uh, stuff that's happening. Um, and you're just trying not to screw anything up. And you have such a limited amount of time to get everything that you need to do um, squeezed in. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely one of those things where you're just running around trying to, uh, uh, I mean, it, it doesn't sink in until really after the flight, everything that just happened, you know, and then you come back, you know, the adrenaline starts kicking in, you start replaying everything that just happened. And that's when I think it truly sinks in. You're like, you know, Hey man, I'm actually getting to do this. This is a pretty cool thing. And so you're, you're on the runway, your instructor's behind you. Yeah. So, uh, for the instructor, you know, the, uh, uh, the instructor is, uh, the, the typical, your first flight in, uh, in the F-16 is going to be, you're in the upfront and we call it the family model. So the, the two seater, um, typically the, you know, the student pilot on that one is going to be in the front with the instructor in the back. There's two sets of controls in the front and the back. So if something goes crazy, you know, the, uh, the back seat, uh, the instructor in the back could actually take control of the aircraft and fly it, but, uh, typically it doesn't happen that way. Um, but yeah, so you, you know, we line up for the runway, we get, you know, cleared for takeoff and all that stuff. And, you know, it's uh, generally an afterburner takeoff. So, you know, at that point you had um, training jets that had afterburners on them, um, but not nearly the, uh, the kick that a frontline combat jet will have. So that was uh, even, even the fact that it was a, uh, my first flight was June uh, in Phoenix is where the, uh, the uh, F-16 training base is. So, you know, that first, uh, you know, even with the hot uh, temperatures, I mean, it still throws you back in the seat pretty well. And, um, you know, it's all you can do to really, you, you know, you start, everything's happening so, so much faster than you're used to. Um, so, you know, just trying to get up with the, the speed of the aircraft and everything like that. But you feel the, the afterburner kick a few seconds later, man, you're, you know, you got to uh, stand the thing on its, uh, on its tail to keep from, you know, uh, over accelerating the landing gear. You know, because uh, in the the time it takes for the um, for the landing gear to retract, you could actually overspeed it if you just take off and just uh, fly straight and level. 
Really? Yeah. So what is the mission right now? This is this is kind of like your first test flight with your instructor? To- yeah. So the mission is basically going to be what we call um, AHC, which would be an advanced handling characteristic. So really going up there and kind of running the plane through the envelope, just single ship, you know, going out there saying, hey, this is, you know, feel the acceleration of the jet, feel the maneuver potential of the jet. Um, and you'd run through some um, can maneuvers just to kind of get you to, uh, to expand the or to feel and experience the envelope of the aircraft and the envelope. What I mean by that is the performance envelope, you know, Hey, the slow speed characteristics, the high speed characteristics, the uh, G load onset rates and things of that nature, uh, nature. So are you, are you being tested on your ability to know the controls and, and, and perform this entire envelope of the aircraft? That's what this, is this kind of like the final test or is this still kind of in the middle stages of you becoming a fighter pilot? No, it's the, the middle. I mean, I think it's the middle stages. It's the first time you're already, you know, you're already rated from the air force. So you're already a pilot for the air force. Now this is the first, the initial stages of taking that air force rating and now turning it into a fighter pilot rating. Um, IE, I mean, um, you know, a pilot's a pilot, but then now you're actually learning your your actual weapon system. So this is the initial stages of learning your uh, your actual weapon system. Real quick side note: we Rachel and I touched on this with the current state of the Air Force and the military, and the amount of female pilots are like one percent of fighter pilots. But out of all the pilots in the in the Air Force and the Navy, only like six percent of them are male fighter pilots. So the number is like, you would think that like, there's a bunch of fight. There's what my point is, is that what you're getting, what you're training to do at this time in your life is a, being sought at. I don't know if it's a real sought after position. If people are intimidated by this position, if it scares people away to actually train to become a fighter pilot and they're just fine flying a C-130 or another type of military aircraft. But when you start talking combat aircraft and fighter pilot, when she threw those numbers around of 1% of pilots in the military are female fighter pilots are female Mm -hmm. and like 6% are males. So the numbers aren't that real, aren't real high. Is it because it's intimidating and what you're doing is very difficult on, on, you know, per se difficult. It might've became second nature, like riding a bike to you and somebody like Rachel, but why are those numbers so low? Well, it, I mean, it, it comes to needs of the needs of the military, you know, bottom line, um, you know, as far as the male, look, the total fighter pilotness, uh, or how many people come into the, the combat fighter pilots, it's basically, um, I think it's a lot of it's predicated on the needs of the military at that point. Um, you know, the screening process. So the screening process is absolutely more difficult, you know, to, um, uh, to get through there. Um, you know, and you're, you're constantly, it's the, you know, the standard thing. It's, um, everybody, like we talked about earlier in pilot training, you're, um, you're graded and you're scored and and you're racked and stacked. And a lot of it could be, you know, some guys, uh, a lot of it's attitude as well. Some guys that actually have very good stick and rudder skills, but um, would rather uh, fly, you know, transport aircraft. That that lifestyle appeals to them a little bit. Right. I'm just fixing this real quick. Yeah. There you go. So yeah, sorry about that. So um, yeah, so that that might be what appeals to them a little bit. Um, I know what the female portion of it. You know, Rachel and I have talked on, and, and there's no degradation in skills between a, a you know a female um, pilot and a, and a male pilot. The one thing that's inherent with um, you know, aviation in general is competitive, but then you definitely kick that up an extra notch when you start the fighter pilot. You have to be constantly competitive and constantly, um, you know, almost a little bit of a bravado to kind of one up one another because that makes each other better a little bit. Um, where I think that's more inherent 
into the uh, male DNA than it is to the female DNA, um, which might uh, dissuade a lot of the you know female aviators from choosing the um, the fighter pilot um, career path. Um, you know, even my wife has said that you know on several times. She's like, "Yeah, you guys are just naturally more competitive." She's like, "I got to work at it a little bit more," you know. Yeah. And it's just, I think it's you know Mars Venus um, type genealogy or you know whatever you want to say about that. But that's why you see such a small percentage. Um, I don't think it's it has nothing to do necessarily with skills, you know, um, per se, like, Hey, the guys are naturally more gifted at flying airplanes than girls. I don't, I don't believe that at all. So how many, how many people are in your position at this time in your career, when you're training and you're up on this flight, your first flight, Mm -hmm. are there hundreds of people that are, are in this line for testing to become a fighter pilot? You know, I mean, there, there, I, I can't speak intelligently about that, but it, it is a constant, you know, um, path. Everyone's getting tested and then you're, they're squeezing guys in. And so there is a constant trend because, you know, like anything else, our air force is large enough to, as soon as you, you know, they, um, as soon as you train new guys up, there's guys that have to retire, you know? So there, it, it's a constant, uh, process of training the you know, the newest class because the older classes is now, or the older guys are now uh, retiring or going off and doing other things. So yeah, there's constantly people, um, in the, um, in the pipeline, if you will. Uh, and the, the air force does mitigate that, you know, as far as you know, they try to, um, as accurately as they can. And I think that, you know, the Navy's the same way they, they figure out what their needs from fiscal year to fiscal year. And now they said, okay, well, we're going to need you know, and I'm just throwing numbers out here arbitrarily, but let's say, hey, next year we're going to need 500 new fighter pilots. Well, we have five pilot training bases. Each one need to turn out, you know, 100 pilots, of fighter, uh, 100 fighter pilots per base, you know, on average. Now there's, you know, a little attrition here and there. So maybe the numbers might be bloated or they might uh, come up a little short, but you have these roundabout figures that they're always trying to do to maintain um, their manning. So is every pilot that's in the training that you're in at this time in your career trying to be a fighter pilot and some of them don't make the mark or cut the bill. So they're put, so they're like, well, you can still fly for our military, but you're not going to be in a, a fighter jet. Yeah, absolutely. That happens. No, absolutely. It, it happens a lot. But yeah. most of the people that are there training and testing are trying to be fighter pilots or there's guys that are there with the mindset of like, I don't want to be a fighter pilot. I just want to be a, 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 a pilot on another aircraft that might not necessarily be in combat or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. There, there, are. there are, you know, there, you know, you're given choice. Um, when, when you uh, show up to it. So, you know, a lot of guys, you know, when I got in, I'm like, you know, Hey, in, in my personal opinion, it was like, dude, the fighters are the coolest thing on the planet. So that's what I want to go for, you know, and you work your butt off to try to get there. Hopefully you have the grades and the scores to be able to do that. And there's, there's a, a good percentage of people that want to do that. And, you know, their grades and scores just aren't high enough, you know, and, and they are unable to do it. Um, some guys don't want to do it. Some you know, guys don't want it. They want to, you know, they, they, they probably, you know, they want to do the transport or the tanker aircraft or something like that. That, that lifestyle kind of appeals to them a little bit more. So, you know, it, it all comes down to, um, a lot of it is, you know, um, a lot of it is mostly you're testing out because, you know, obviously you have the guy, the top guy in your class gets his or her choice on what aircraft they want, you know? So when you, you, you know, after the year of pilot training, when you're racked and stacked and everything against each other, as far as comparing, you know, um, everyone's scores, simulators, testing and everything like that. They're going to, they're going to say, okay, this is the top guy in the class or gal in the class. And then this is the bottom. Everybody knows where you stand in accordance. So where did you, are you allowed to talk about that? I don't think, uh, I never really, uh, I think I finished, uh, and we were a combined class. I was uh, at the NATO training center. So we had, um, a couple, there was, uh, some Norwegians, you know, in my training class, we had Norwegians, Germans, Danish, 
uh, a couple of Italians, and then the rest were Americans. So I think of the gradable Americans, um, or of the class in general, I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I know I finished, uh, in the top three, you know, so I know, I know, I don't think I was number one, but I don't, you know, I think I was probably two or three out of how many, if, if you're out of all those ethnic yeah, there, backgrounds, how, yeah, there, there was hundreds, like, there was 30 guys in the 30 class. Guys yeah. in your top wow. So being the, the competitor, you just talked about bravado and you're a, you're a college football player. You guys are jocks. You're walking around with your letterman's jacket, your whole career. You got a lot of confidence, right? You're not cocky. You don't have to necessarily be uh, an arrogant prick, but you're like one of those, you know, like there's a lot of pilots in movies that are, that are described as the, the, the ice man, you know, kind of bravado that kind of cocky, right? Yeah. So oh, yeah. your confidence level, I would assume in this testing phase is like, Hey, I got this. Like I, you've already flown a lot of planes. You've already flown passenger planes in your, in your first commercial job in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Are you nervous at all? Being the athlete that you were, the student that you were, the upbringing that you had, the discipline that you had as a man are you shaking a little bit with this guy over your shoulder grading you or were you just knew that you're going to nail this? No, no, absolutely. That's uh, you're, you're always, you know, you're the, the, the best ride that you ever have that we call it is, you know, once you finally get done after three years of being graded on every single thing you do, you know, you finally, that's the most fun ride is when they just hand you the keys, you go out, no one's writing a grade sheet on you. No one's staring at you. No one's judging you. You're just like, Hey, go do what we trained you to do. And that's, that's pretty cool. And you're always trying to, you know, you want to impress your instructors. You want to do, put your best foot forward and always do as, as good as you can. So there, yeah, there's, there's some nervousness. Um, I don't think, I really don't think anybody rolls in there saying, Oh dude, this is, this is a, I, I got this thing doped out. There's no way I could possibly wash out or there's no way I could not be successful at this. I mean, that was, I can, you know, I can't speak for everybody that emphatically was not my, um, attitude going there. Obviously you're confident to go out there and you don't want to second guess yourself. You know, you're like, Hey, I'm just going to go out there. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to make decisions as I see them real time. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to come back and we're going to, we're, we're going to learn from it, you know? And I think that's like, if anything else, like any type of, you know, athlete or professional they're you know, no one's perfect and we never, we don't expect to be, you always strive for that perfection. But at the end of the day, everything you do wrong, you're like, Hey man, I'm probably going to do 20 or 30 things wrong on this flight. The next flight, I only want to do 10 things wrong. The next flight, I want to do five, you know, so you're constantly uh, moving towards that level of perfection or to that level where you just, you, you get everything completely, um, completely correct. Um, I still don't think even, you know, 17 years later in my career, I, I've had the perfect flight. <laughs> so <laughs> you know? are you, are you, is it blue skies this day? Is it overcast? Is it low ceiling? It's Arizona. So it's, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty blue skies, but yeah. it's hot. It it's is. heat waves. Yeah. So what are your check? What are your marks this day? Do you remember getting done with the flight and, and in your instructor's reaction to you? Was it all good? I'm sure he didn't say, you know, in, in the, the, you know, fighter, uh, in, in, especially in the military, uh, realm, I wouldn't even say just fighter pods, but military in general, like you, no one talks about the 95% of the stuff you do, right? Everything is focused on the 5% you do wrong. And obviously you have to have thick skin, you know, so no one's going to tell you, oh, you're, you're great here. You're great there. It's just not even mentioned. The only thing is that, you know, after you think everything went right, you come back and the dude 
uh, or the guy or the gal, whoever your instructor is now starts going into you for two to three hours on like the three things that you did wrong. It's like, Hey man, remember when, uh, you know, they gave us a radio change. It took you three seconds to change the radio. You remember specifically any of yours on that first day? I don't, you don't you know that was a while ago. So, so you didn't dwell on it. It was no. just time to go. So how, what, what happens next? You go back to your barracks or your, your dorm room. So, or- yeah. So you go back and, you know, at the time we lived, I lived off base and, you know, so you go back there and you're like, okay, now time to get ready for the next mission. Cause which is how long, um, uh, the next day. Really? You're so big. you go right back up. How yeah. long was this first flight? Is it an hour? It's about an hour. Yeah. About an hour. Mm-hmm. You land the plane. Yep. Do you remember your landing? Was it smooth as butter? You don't remember I don't, that either. Man. I mean, you've it been, was a landing. You've done it so many times. Yeah, it's been a How lot. many hours do you think you have in a fire jet? It, it, oh, f- Rachel's was about 500. In, a, in the F-16, yeah. uh, I had just shy of 1,200 hours. Just shy of 1,200 hours. Mm-hmm. So this is your first hour. It's probably hard to think back yeah. thousands of hours ago. Well, yeah. And as far as like fighter type aircraft or ejection seat aircraft, I have, uh, I think the last time I'm, I'm sitting around 2,300 total time in fighter in fighter aircraft. That includes the 16 plus yeah. all the other ones. Plus all the other ones. So now you go back, you get a good night's sleep. You know, you're going back up with the, mm-hmm. is it the same instructor? Yeah, it, it could, it, it doesn't it, have it to be. It doesn't have to be. But you now know. is this starting to get into more of the, the aerobatics and, and things of this nature? That, that's it. Your first four flights is basically doing the aerobatics and then instruments, i.e. like, okay, bringing the jet back. If it's uh, if the weather is bad, you know, low ceilings, low visibility rain. So you have uh, approach procedures they are called instrument approach procedures. And it's a little bit different than when you do them in a fighter category aircraft versus a transport category aircraft, just because, you know, you don't have as much equipment in the fighters. Um, you're just there to, you know, that the, a lot of those procedures are kind of afterthoughts with a fighter aircraft because it's purposely designed to, you know, literally fly into someone's country, go out there and break their stuff. That's what it's designed to There's do. There's no weapons on this training jet though, right? Or are there? No, we don't fly with live weapons. So it's pretty lightweight for what you're going to go into theater on a, on a real war mission with, right? Yeah. Is it called a war mission? Combat mission? Yeah, combat. Sorry. So yeah. when you're when you're up here doing that, what is the most simple example of an aerobatic that you could give me? Is that nose? What is it called when you just go nose up and straight up in the air? Just a nose high climb. Nose high yeah. climb. Is that aerobatics? Uh, well, it, it, like most things, you know, because it's it's a constant physics lesson. You know, you go up these jets, you know, especially the ones that we were flying are not a, a what they call a thrust to weight ratio one to one, i.e you know, it has, um, it means it won't accelerate going straight up. You know, you have, uh, some of the mainline fighter, uh, or, uh, combat aircraft that have a thrust to weight ratio greater than one to one, which means you stand it on its tail. It will still, um, accelerate as it's climbing, you know, these jets don't do that. So as you're, you know, you, you once you go the high pitch attitudes, you know, obviously your airspeed's going to get lower. So, and it reaches a point to where like, Hey man, you got to do something with the plane. Otherwise it's going to come, you know, come back down to earth and whether it's controlled or uncontrolled, you know, it doesn't matter. It's coming back down. So you're constantly looking at what your we call it energy state, what your energy state is basically how much velocity you have on the aircraft, because that's going to dictate what kind of options you have available when, as far as maneuvering. So what is the simplest form of an aerobatic? What would the move be? Or just like a loop, a loop, yeah. which is that just flipping the plane around one just, time? Yeah. Just going around and, and maintaining a, a control water speed. What, what, a, a loop energy. like nose up, like the tidal wave loop or just like flipping the plane that's around. A, that's considered an aileron roll. When you do a roll, that's just uh, you know, that, that, that's just an aileron roll. So, if you do a loop, that's like standing it on its tail and, you know, doing the full all the way back and then, uh, and then coming back around, like basically if you do it correctly, you should start or you should end at almost the exact same point you started at or the same altitude, um, that you started at. Are you good at those? 
you know, once again, it's, it's, it's all about energy management. I'd say, you know, I haven't crashed yet doing one, so I guess I'm okay. At you do them daily when you fly right now on your missions now? What if it, if the situation calls for it, you know, I wouldn't say I do it daily, but it's, it's a very common maneuver, you know? Um, and there's a lot of maneuvers that have come back over time. You know, you, you practice Emmelman's pitch backs, slice backs, you know, um, they call them, uh, uh, AOA, I wouldn't say necessarily departures, but, uh, increased angle of attack, um, type, uh, type maneuvers. So that's, that's the purpose of the first one, just getting comfortable with the jet and getting the instruments, getting to the point where you could take that aircraft and now fly away. You know, um, we call it, you know, basically your Huravac rating, which is means, Hey, there's a hurricane coming towards this base. You know, you guys hop in the jet and fly it uh, somewhere else, you know, fly it, get, get the plane out of here. So once you do that, that's your first like seven flights, the first four with an instructor, the last three are by yourself. I mean, you still have an instructor, but he's in another jet and, and now they're, um, and that's what you're doing with those first seven rides after the seventh, fl seventh flight. That's when you actually get your check ride, your sign off or saying, Hey, this guy is qualified to take this jet. We trust him to now take, is that your wings? No, you already have your wings. That's, you already have your wings. That's just your uh, your rating letter, I guess. That's your rating letter. Yeah. So now you're checked off. Checked off. After your seventh flight, the yeah. th this is the the final of seven, but it's the final of three that were individual with, a, with an instructor in another jet. Yeah, this happens relatively quickly. Then after that, now you continue on training with the different aspects of the flight. So now you start, you generally move into your air-to-air -air stuff, which is your offensive, um, uh, we call it BFM, basic fighter maneuvering, but dogfighting. Offensive dogfighting, defensive dogfighting, high aspect dogfighting, uh, and then you start moving in from there. Then you start incorporating other aircraft. So then you go into your intercepts, um, your you know your basic intercepts, uh, maturing into a basic intercept of another aircraft uh, into a dogfighting um, type scenario. After that, then you move beyond that. Now it's what we call ACM air combat maneuvering. Essentially, two planes versus one bandit, and, and they set it up to where you're you know, the bandits behind you. And now you have to do essentially two things. You got to max control or max perform your jet while still talking to somebody and maintaining contracts. So you do a lot of this stuff, um, based on, you know, Hey, these are pre briefed contracts. This is what we, what we plan on doing. Um, because a lot of times, you know, you don't have a lot of the, um, the communications time available to you. So you have to maneuver your plane, uh, in such a rapid manner that you might not always be able to talk while you're doing it. So it's, it's how you, you could adhere, you could understand, internalize, and then under, you know, stressful conditions, um, execute briefed contracts. So when you just said at the beginning of your statement right there, Brian, you just said that you continue your training after your seventh flight. Yeah. But what does that seventh flight qualify you for to go to theater? No, you're no, not ready to go yet. No, no, no. So you, you just get, you get your letter that you're ready to you, fly you the get, jet you on get, your own. Yeah. You get rated at the F-16. So now there's, there's your rating letter. Yep. So you're rated in the airplane. But does that mean you're not mission qualified? So that, that does not mean you're mission yeah. qualified. So okay. the MQ, that's now you continue with the rest of the syllabus, which is basically now taking that F-16 that you could fly straight and level like a like an airliner and do some instrument approaches to it. And now you can um, you could take now taking that airplane and that rating and turning that into um, uh, a combat system. So how long is it now from the end of your seventh flight to when you're ready to go into your first combat mission? Well, so, so that, um, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit different. So after that seventh flight, you still have about eight months of training left, eight so, months, eight months. So you're flying about every day to every other day going through, um, still in Arizona, still in Arizona. So you do that for another eight months. The, the total syllabus is about a 10 month syllabus. 
And then you go through some, um, you know, when it's said and done, there's little train additional trainings here and there, a little additional sim rides. So when it's really said and done, it's about a one year syllabus. So you're training for another year in the F 16 after that. Now you go to your first operational assignment. So when and you're still not mission qualified, so either like, Hey, he, we've taught him all the ba him or her, all the basics on the F 16. He knows how to employ it air to air, air to ground and everything that we know, um, that he, they should experience. So after that, now you go to your first assignment. Now your first assignment, and then they run you through your mission qual training is a MQT syllabus is mission qual training syllabus. That is typically depending on the unit, uh, going to run about another two to three months. So after you go through that, and that basically trains you on the, uh, the specifics because each unit does things slightly different, or I wouldn't say does things slightly different. They might have different, um, uh, uh, responsibilities as far as, Hey, this squadron is our squadron that shoots this type of, or drops this type of bomb or shoots this type of missile or executes this specific mission set. You know, these are the specialists, you know, the F 16 is like most guys will say it's, you know, the Jack of all trades, but King of none, because you're constantly doing so many different missions. You just don't have enough time to specialize. So you go through your, um, your mission qual training with your, spe uh, with your special, uh, specified, um, unit. And then after the three month syllabus, then you get what they call an MQT letter. So you basically, Hey, this guy is, or gal is completely, um, mission fully mission qualified. So now after that, you are able to run combat missions with your unit. So that's a, after the seventh flight, there was eight months of more training. And then mm -hmm. after that eight month, you have another two to three month syllabus mm -hmm. that does MTQ or MQT MQT mission qual training. Yeah. Mission qual training. Yeah. So what was the other eight months? What was the first eight months after your first seven flights? Just mission. Just yeah. Just overall, like, you know, learning how to drive the, or learn, learning how to fly and employ the F-16 with all, with different weapons added, things yeah. of that nature. Yep. Another segue jumping out of an airplane. Mm -hmm. You have to learn that as a fighter pilot, right? In case something happens to your jet, does that, is that something that is trained that you guys train for to where God forbid it happens, but you guys have to be able to get out of a plane, right. And mm -hmm. be able to deploy a chute and, and all that. Most right? of that stuff happens automatically, but, um, you have to understand how to, yeah, you have to be briefed on, okay, this is, if you need to eject, this is how you eject. Once you eject that, you know, learn the steps, this is what should happen in the ejection process. If it, anything screws up, these, these are the steps you could take to try to rectify that. Um, and then once, you know, you're sitting behind the, underneath the, the parachute, then you're like, okay, well now I got to look once again, constantly evaluating my situation. Now I got to look at the canopy, make sure there was not a malfunction in the parachute canopy opening. So do um, you train in skydiving? No, you don't as a fighter pilot. You really don't No. Hmm. It's well, that's kind of interesting to me well, that you wouldn't have to know your way around the chute if you did have to. Well, it's not like it, the, the chutes are different. You know, it's not like the shoots that you see on TV where the guys come in and perfectly flare and then they walk away, grab a beer. These shoots are designed for a much greater envelope. They've had successful ejections over Mach. I think uh, one of the fastest ejections was Mach 1.1. So these shoots are designed to necessarily take a, a much more punishment than those trick shoots that you see on TV. So they, they will function. Um, at a wider envelope, the, the, the trade-off to that functionality is dude, when you come down and you hit the ground, it's you're there to hard. get, yeah, you're hitting hard, especially if you're over 200 pounds, which I am, you know, I mean, you're, I'm coming down like a friggin' meteor, but yeah. I'm going to, you, you know, you'll, you'll live. And the difference is what you're looking at is, you know, in an ejection seat, the reason why you don't, you don't train to it, you, you train on the steps and the processes, um, and then the contingencies, 
but you don't actually do it because you know you're sitting on a rocket motor and you're only allowed really two ejections in your entire career. Otherwise, you're, you're medically disqualified from flying. Medically disqualified. Because, you know, it does, it, it, it traces a huge amount of stress on your spine. Sure. You know, I've you, had, you've never experienced that, I assume. No. Do you know anybody that has? Yeah, I've had a couple friends that have ejected. I can't imagine. So. How, what's the altitude that an F-16, what's the average or what's the highest you've been in an F-16 or what's, what's the, common? The one? service ceiling is um, 50,000 feet on the plane. 50,000 um, Our typical employment is, you know, um, it, it, once again, it depends, but you know, the, the F-16 is really good and really effective below 25,000 feet. So if you do, is, are you fighting at 50,000 feet? Is that, does that, I mean, my, my question is, is would you ever have to eject that high? And that'd be impossible to land from 50,000 feet, wouldn't it? No, so you could. I mean, and everything is built for that. So let's say if you ejected out of 50,000 feet, the chute doesn't open immediately. The chute actually has a little bit of a, it has a device in it um, that senses the barometric pressure and it's, it's, it's triggered to open between um, 16 and 14,000 feet. So roughly 15,000 plus or minus 1,000 feet. And the reason for that is, remember, this thing, uh, you know, the contingencies have to happen because you could be unconscious. So you know? you're free falling for 30,000 feet so yeah. potentially? Yeah. Holy shit. I mean, you do have a, 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 an auxiliary oxygen bottle and stuff like that that's in there. So if you remember, you pull your oxygen bottle, um, you know, but even at 30,000 feet, you still have a couple minutes of useful consciousness. So by the time you get down, you'll, you know, you're falling pretty quick. So um, you'll get down to a, a breathable altitude relatively quickly. 30. I can't imagine. Yeah. Can't imagine. Okay. So now the it, biggest thing with the ejection is the opening shock. So you think about it this way, like we've all done this when you're a little kid, right? You're driving down the highway and you stick your hand out and you start going like this. You know, what is that at 65 miles an hour? You have guys that, so imagine doing that to your entire body when it's five or 600 miles an hour. I mean, that's, that's where the injuries come in. That's where it gets, cause there are guys have happened at, you know, fast, um, fast air speeds, high altitudes. Once you leave the aircraft, there's nothing protecting you from that opening shock or from those, those, um, uh, air injuries. So guys have, you know, it's hit them so hard that they've passed out. Is it sim? Is there a simulator for this? No, really? I just can't believe that there, there's, I guess there's just no way to train for it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like you say on a lot of things in, 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 you know, in the military, it's like, well, you got the rest of your life to figure it out. <laughs> well, and God, you know, God forbid that you'd ever get put in that position. So you get to the end of this eight month period, then you yeah. got three, two to three months left of the mission training qualification. Yep. Now what goes on? Is there a graduation process to where you walk up and get a diploma with, or are you just ready to go right into the, the yeah. mission meeting? So after, you know, so after you go through the F, the schoolhouse, you know, the one year period in the F-16, they do have a graduation where, you know, friends and family come in and, um, you're, you're officially a fighter pilot that, at that point. Um, so yeah, they'll bring the families in they put them in the simulators and stuff like that. And they, you know, um, you meet the squadron, the, the staff and everything like that. So that's a good, a, a big to do. Once you go through your mission qual training, now you're just, now you're just another cog in the, the machine. So it's, you know, but the accomplishment part of this has got to be amazing to you when it, this happens and you got your family there. I mean, you're a fighter pilot in the U S military. Yeah. You started watching airplanes at John Wayne Airport, close to John, down by Long Beach, California, yeah. that your grandpa would fly in and out of once in a while. Mm -hmm. Now you're a fighter pilot in an F-16, qualified in mission training. Yeah. 
I'm picturing the scene after all the all the drama takes place in Top Gun, and they all go to that mission meeting at the yeah. end, and he's like, "I'll you know I'll fly with you." Mm -hmm. Is that what it is? You go into the secret room, and they're like, "Hey, more, you're going to be." Da -da -da. Is that no? It's not like no, that. No, nothing like that. You know, not all fighter pilots are you know, um, you know, it's just it's not you know. Obviously, there's the standard dramatization that they have you know in, in Hollywood. So it's not. It's like, hey man, you're qual. Now you're a contributor to the squadron. Congratulations. That's it. You know, and obviously you're going to go home and, you know, have a beer or maybe a couple of dudes will join you in a beer. And, you know, but I think one of the thing that's that's really um, I mean, it might just be my own hiccup. I was like, you know, I, I've never really sat down and, you know, uh, got very retrospective behind it. I'm like, OK, what's the next thing I have to do? You know, so now it's like, hey, just got this done. Cool. What's my next rating? My next rating is to be become a two ship flight lead, which means now I'm qualified to take two planes out. And then after that, I need to be a four ship flight lead. So now I can take four aircraft. After that, I need to be an instructor pilot. After that, I need to be a mission commander. So you're, you're constantly, what does you, it mean to take two planes out or four? planes? So out? if you're a flight lead, that you're means the leader with four behind you with two, or you start out with a leader with the, what you call wingman. So you're the, you're the guy leading the flight around. Then you go a four ship flight lead. So now it's me with three more, with three more. And then now you're a mission commander. Uh, your next rating is, um, you know, is either an instructor or a mission commander, depending on how your unit does it, but a mission commander. So now you're the guy that, that is, um, um, uh, basically coming up with a strike plan for day one of a major air campaign. So you could have, you know, in certain instances up to 60 or 70 aircraft that you have to coordinate with and, and figure out, um, basically what the, what the leadership wants to do as far as, Hey man, this is our mission. You want, we need to take this, this, and this out. These are your assets. These are your allocate. Figure out how to do it. And you go through that, you know, you get, you get that qualification, go through that training. After that, now you become an instructor. So you take the new guys and you fly with them and you're the one that's, you know, in charge in the squadron to, you know, to, to make them better, you know, and, and, and teach them. And then, you know, then you have a very, very select few that gets to go to, I know the Navy weapon, you know, top gun program, um, you know, is kind of what made, uh, made that school, we call it generally weapons instructor course, or there's several iterations of it with the various services, but that's, you know, Top Gun, it made that in like kind of a household term. The Air Force has, you know, they call it fighter weapons school, um, which is basically, or weapons instructor course, they call it the WIC, which is about a six to seven month program. The uh, Air Force, or I mean, the Navy Top Gun is about a three, three and a half month program. The Marines go through the Top Gun program. So everybody has uh, kind of the elite, you know, um, wow. Yeah, the elite program that they have for their top instructors. Where top is guys. Top Gun? It used to be here, didn't it? It's in Fallon. Still? Yeah. So the 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 cream of the crop, the, the top rated, I don't know, are they the best fighter pilots in the military? You know, it, it's are like- Are they chosen to go to Top Gun? They are. No, you have to have a, an endorsement. You know, uh, typically you have to submit a package, you know, i.e. of, you know, a general synopsis of your- uh, and I'm not super uh, um, familiar with the process, but generally, if it's anything like the Air Force process, you submit a package. Basically, it's an executive summary of all your accomplishments, your ratings, everything that you've done. Obviously, letters of recommendation from other, you know, um, we call them patchware, so other people that have gone through the course and things of that nature. You go home, have a couple beers. So are you nervous now or are you ready to, to get your first mission? Cause now it's go time. It's for it's, sure. This is, this is like in the back of your mind, you're could be in a, a combat fight, a gunfight, a dog fight, you know, pretty soon now in your yeah. career. Yeah. I don't, you, were, you were flying some cowboys from Cheyenne to Denver drunk. <laughs> and now all of a sudden you're getting ready to say, all right, well, 
where, where do I go? And, and so how do you find that out? What happens next? Well, so at, at, you, you know, so you're already in theater. Um, you know, Rachel and I's first squadron, uh, combat squadron was in Korea. So that's where, you know, that was where our threat was coming from, you know, and at the time, you know, those, uh, the, the, the governments up there are obviously not complying with the rest of the world. So they, you know, we, we spent a lot of time, what we call on alert status because, you know, the North Koreans were shooting off tape, uh, table dong, missiles, which is their, you know, their forerunner to their ICBM type missiles. So they were shooting those off towards Japan. So I was putting everybody in the area uh, on edge. So, you know, we, we had strike plans ready to go. And in, in some of the, you know, more t- uh, contentious times, we were sitting in the, ha- you know, we called them Hazes, hardened aircraft shelters. We're sitting in these hardened aircraft shelters with our jets. Jets are fully loaded, fully fueled, waiting for the phone to ring, doors open, and then we're going north to Korea. Does the phone ring? No, didn't ring. I mean, you would have read about it if it did. For how long? Well, you'd sit there, depending, you know, sometimes how sometimes you'll have this uh, elevated alert status for up a week at a time. You know, sometimes it's just a couple days. Sometimes. How long are you in Korea for? Uh, I was there for 18 months. And this is where you met your bride-to-be. Mm-hmm. How? Uh, she was in the same squadron. So what, what's, is it, is it a bar you're drinking beer and you sing, you lost that loving feeling to her? No, is it dumb that I keep, is it dumb that I keep comparing it? Yeah, no, it's, uh, (laughs) you know, it was actually, we're in the same, um, the same office, if you will, like within the squadron, there's, you know, you're flying is you don't just fly airplanes you have a bunch of additional duties as well. So my, uh, first job was in the scheduling and ops department. So basically I was the guy that was coordinating airspace with the Koreans and the American forces and then scheduling our training events and things of that nature. So, uh, you know, largely, you know, there was a lot of, when I wasn't flying, there was a lot of guys giving me their inputs and I'm just trying to play the shell game, getting all the guys, um, their, training qualifications, um, getting all the airspace, um, required to do the mission sets and everything like that. So needless to say, you know, so I would, that was my, um, that was my, my bag at that point, Rachel was in training. So she was, she sat in the same office, but had a couple desks back, uh, for me. And she was in charge of making sure everyone was qualified and everything like that. And if they needed additional training, she was the one that scheduled it. Needless, uh, needless to say, you know, my job was 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 a um, high vis type gig, you know, because it was readily apparent if I was screwing stuff up because everybody's schedule and basically quality of life in general would go uh, would go down the toilet. Um, so, needless to say, she she saw me, I guess, at my best, you know, being able to handle all that stuff, and a lot of it at my worst, a lot of f bombs and a lot of uh, you know curse words being being thrown at the at the schedule and stuff, and especially when something happens that. You know, you have a plan, you have a, a train of thought in your mind, and then someone comes in and just completely throws a grenade on it and uh, completely destroys, you know, several days worth of work, you know. So, yeah, so obviously she could uh, handle my colorful language and, uh, you know, and. Uh, so do you notice Rachel checking you out while you're doing this hard, this, this high vis- visibility job? I don't know. I mean, she sat behind me, so I, I, I didn't know. And I was mostly focusing on this, uh, on this board. So. so did she ask you out? Uh, oh, come on. Give us some of the gossip. Man. I don't think so, man. Uh, you know, it was kind of a, it, you know, it, it's kind of one of those weird things. Like you never want to, you never want to poop where you sleep, you know, type thing. And, and squadrons are very tight. You don't want to induce relationship drama into something like that because then it gets really awkward. And, you know, it's like, you know, dad slapping mom at the dinner table. Like it's awkward for everybody. And, yeah. and you bring that kind of relationship drama to where now are you forcing the squadron to choose a side or what's going on? So, you know, you, you always take that with, uh, kid, uh, kid gloves, if you will. 
And obviously it's not something that you want to enter, enter into, um, lightly, you know, because of the, the potential fallout, you know, it's not like, Hey, this is, you know, this is a, a sister in the squadron. and I'm not just going to, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And you know, you roll out. But I, I want to say I, I asked her out first. So. And the rest is history. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Two fighter pilots. So you're in Korea. So you, you made a statement that you are scheduling airspace. Mm-hmm. So without be with the doors never opening and you getting the phone call, you guys are still going up to train and, and make sure that your, your senses are keen. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And you run exercises. So you, you, we'd run exercises, um, twice a year. And those are the major exercises simulating what would happen if day one of the war kicked off between South and North Korea. Um, typically those exercises co, co- um, correspond to North Korea does two major, uh, military exercises a year. So they are posturing on their side. We posture on our side. Um, and it, and it basically allows you to train and say, um, and, and to simulate what would happen day one of the war. And you coordinate with multiple units that are there, both uh, U.S., both Korean, not just Air Force, also Army. You know, we have Navy units that are coming in to backfill and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a great opportunity to um, really practice integration on a uh, – um, and, and make sure that day one of the war goes seamlessly. I mean, as, as, as silly as it sounds, but that's really what you want to do because confusion, um, losses of integration could potentially – uh, be catastrophic as far as a uh, uh, loss of life, also you know um, inefficiency in combat. So where where does this take you then? This this never happens. No, you come back to the states. No, or? so from there, um, Rachel and I both knew we had uh, follow on assignments to Germany. So we went from Korea to Germany. Did you fly over there? Uh, commercially. That's so the they point. send you fly. And how do they bring the jets over? Well, each unit, the jets stay where they are. Each unit has their jets in their particular area. So there was a unit in, in South Korea that you guys, that the jets stay there all the time. Yeah. They're so there right now. Yep. There's uh, three F-16 squadrons in South Korea right now. And how many jets are in a squadron? Uh, on average, you're looking at about um, about 25 to 27 aircraft on a, on a typical squadron. Sometimes there's smaller squadrons that have a few less. Sometimes you have, we call them super squadrons that have more, but generally you're looking about 25 aircraft per squadron. So there's some American soldiers that were American fighter pilots that were you 15 years ago. They're there right now. Absolutely. Waiting for the same phone call. Absolutely. Maybe not the same thing struggles going on, but they're there right now. Yeah. Yeah. How many countries do we have squadrons like that sitting in right now? Um, is it, is it Intel? Is that secret Intel? I don't know if that's no, common I mean, knowledge. There's, it, it, it's common knowledge. I mean, we typically, we have squadrons in Japan. We have squadrons in Korea. We have squadrons in Germany, Italy. Um, and I, if I miss some, I apologize. Russia? No, no, no. That would be, it would, we don't have any Russian squadrons over here. So, I mean, that would be, um, yeah, that would be a, a departure from normal. But, uh, you know, obviously, you know, our European squadrons were still um, uh, leftovers from after World War II. Um, we used to have a lot more squadrons. We used to have squadrons all over the place, uh, in Europe. Uh, we've really relegated it down to basically just Germany and Italy are the two places we have squadrons in still. Um, yeah, Japan, uh, Korea, we, you know, we used to have squadrons in Thailand, um, you know, a lot of the other places, but I really want to say those are the only permanent station, uh, squadrons that we have, at least with the air force, you know, obviously the Navy has the unique ability to, basically move their squadrons via the carriers anywhere in the world, you know, so they don't have a, they, I know they have all their squadrons are mostly uh, focused in the United States and then they have one, uh, a couple squadrons over in Japan. 
So when your boots hit German soil, mm-hmm. what is your what is your intel? What do you know what's going on? What do you know that you're going there to do? So the the unit that was in Germany is called a seed unit, which uh, stands for suppression of enemy air defenses. So it happened. It, it the culmination of that uh, of that mission started in. Uh, uh, or the I'd say the the invention of that uh, uh, or the the need for that uh, type of mission was uh, uh, came about in Korea. So when or not, not I'm sorry Vietnam and in Vietnam they had that's right when you saw the wide pro, uh, proliferation of surface air missiles that are intended to go after fighter size aircraft. And in Vietnam they were losing a lot of jets to these new sur- Russian built surface air missiles. Um, so, you know, the guys got together, you know, the air force, like, Hey, this is unacceptable. We have to find a way to, to really counteract this. And a lot of their stuff has been largely ineffective at this point. So now they started coming up, investing money in not only equipment training and tactics. And so they're through that, uh, um, through all that investment, they came up with, you know, the suppression of enemy air defense squadron, which are called wild weasels. So the genesis of, of what they do is essentially you go up there with a missile that is homes in on energy on transmission. So like radar energy and stuff like that. So what you'll do is you fly, you get these surface air missiles to lock you up, shoot their missile at you. You shoot a missile back at them and bottom line, the missiles, the surface air missiles are going to be a lot. They're a lot bigger. They're a lot faster. So they're always going to get to you before your missile gets to them. So you basically, you lock them up, you shoot your missile, they have a missile in route to you. And then you have to dodge their missile at the, at the last minute. Okay, so you're dodging this 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 ground surface to air. Yeah, STA, or yeah, or I guess you call it that. Yeah, <laughs> I just made that up. Yeah. <laughs> Are there missiles also that you shoot from these jets, or one of the aircrafts yeah. does to intercept the missile? No, there's not. No, you're because intercepting the missile really doesn't do much. Because um, you you want to take out the radar side. You, you want to take out the you radar take side. out the radar. They can't shoot any more missiles because a typical they call it a SAM surface to air missile. Uh, a typical SAM site is basically one radar and several what we call tells. So several places that they have missiles. You know, so if you you could individually target every single one of the missile tells, but why waste all that ordnance when all you have to do is take out the radar and then the missiles can't fire. So how? long if it happened how long are you in germany before germany before you're in the air you know activated into one of these type of battles uh well so that that never i mean so you go through the training once again to do that because it's a different skill set so you go through that training it's a couple months syllabus to do that while you're in germany while you're in germany yep because that's one of the 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 skill sets of that particular unit uh i think i showed up to the unit in june and then we end up deploying to iraq in about six months later so we end up going to iraq um, for, um, and you know, not necessarily, you know, obviously at that time it's a 2007. So the, you know, the integrated air defense system of, of Iraq has largely been taken out by us. So we're not going over there to, 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 to suppress any of that, but now we're doing one of our subset missions, which is, you know, air to ground support. So IE, we call it CAS, close air support for the, the army bubbas and the Marine bubbas that are on the ground. Uh, we essentially are acting as aerial artillery. So, do you have experience? Did you experience any of this while you're over there? Yeah. Are you in combat? Are you experience? Are you uh, hovering and waiting like you were in, in Korea? Or are you actually witnessing some of this now and being a part of it? Yeah, you're being a part of it now. So you're, you know, you'd launch our, the, the base that we, that we would stage out of. It was Balad air base, which is about 50 miles North of uh, Baghdad. Uh, it was one of Saddam's major bases. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so we, we kind of took it over and, and we were running combat operations out of that. So did you run a combat operation personally? Yeah, uh, I ran, ran 107 of them. 107 combat operations. Yeah. And um, in a nutshell, give me a, a layman's term definition of one of a combat mission. Can it be anything from your shooting missiles to your in, in a firefight with machine guns or how, what, what, give me an example. Of one. So, I mean, it, it's a wide variety. So, you know, we start putting a lot of sensors on fighter aircraft now. Um, and it allows you to do another mission set, which is called ISR, which is um, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. And these um, uh, these pods that we put on the jet or additional sensor pods allow you to do a, a huge amount of of, uh, of different things. So you're launching with um, typically we launch with about four bombs, you know, live air to air missiles and with a full gun. And you go up there and now you typically link up with an army unit. And you start talking to what we call a JTAC, which is a joint terminal air controller. And he's a guy that's trained on how to um, properly um, communicate with an aircraft. And, and really, you know, the, the, the big skill with uh, close air support like that is, you know, you have two people with drastically two different perspectives. And trying to get both perspectives on the same page is largely what the JTAC is trained to do. So to minimize any type of what we call fratricide, i.e. friendly fire. You know, so you're, you're, you would go up there, you'd link up with an army unit and they would give you their specific, you know, you get an Intel brief on what's going on. Um, you have your air tasking order that tells you, Hey, this is what the ground commander, that's his intent of this mission that you guys are going to go do. So this is it. Here are the codes, here are the guys, here are all the players you launch, you come up, um, you know, your communication channels, you start talking to the JTAC and they give you a more specific on, Hey, this is what's going on. This is what we're doing. And then basically you say, Hey, we're here. Um, we have, you basically check in as fragged, i.e. Hey, we are here. We are, we brought exactly what you thought we were going to bring. Otherwise you say, Hey, we're checking in with exceptions. Like, Hey man, well, we only got two bombs instead of four or whatever, you know, you give them some, some of the contingency operations. Um, and then you, yeah, you largely sit there and wait. Now you have sensors that allow you to look at all kinds of different stuff, you know, and they're, they're very advanced, um, IR pods. So, you know, um, so these pods or, or FLIR type pods, you know, floor, they're infrared type pods. So you could, you could see a lot of things with it, you know, um, i.e. if somebody is burying something in the ground, you could tell with these pods because the, you know, as soon as you pull some dirt out of the ground, the temperature changes. So you could start, you could see those minor differences in the temperature. Like, Hey, I got this guy that's doing a digging motion and he's, it looks like he's burying something on the side of a road. We might need to check that out. You know, so there's all kinds of stuff you could do with that. You could track vehicles, you could track, you name it. We could track it with it. So, so a lot if of, you see a guy digging and you go over there and you think that he's planting mm -hmm. a device that yeah. is going to try to take some of our tanks out or whatever. Yeah. What do you do? Well, you know, so are you the, allowed to talk about that? I don't know how long. No, I'm yeah, no. I, you know, if there's something I can't talk yeah, about. Yeah. Me. So yeah, you, you know, bottom line is you, you let people know. It's like, Hey, um, you, you start talking to the JTAC and say, Hey, I got this. This is what I'm looking at. And, um, then now the JTAC, um, will, they'll get on the horn to basically their superiors the, to the ground commander and say, Hey, this is what, you know, uh, you know, whatever your call sign is, let's say Viper zero one, Hey, Viper zero one, it's got a guy on this route digging on the side of the road, you know, and the ground commander then can authorize a legal or a lethal strike at that point. He said, yep, go ahead and take him out or say, Hey, stand by. We'll, we'll roll a QRF, which is a quick reaction force that we have all over the place. So they might send a ground unit in there 
or they could send a couple of uh, army Apaches uh, or Marine Cobras. You know, they'll, they'll send either gunships, but the ground commander is the guy that figures out what he wants to do. So he'll say, let's go in there and arrest him, or let's or is, there, is that even an option, or is it just, hey, it's... It, it, all, all things out. It all depends on what their uh, rules of engagement are. You know, and, they, and they're, each person's getting their own, you know, intel briefs on, you know, especially the Army guys. They're, they're actually in the thick of it. So they, you know, hey, they, you know, they're looking for, you know, um, Al Qaeda leaders, ISIS leaders. They're they're looking um, for these things. So they, it might be something. Hey, this might be a guy we want to arrest. So they'll they'll roll in a QRF that is now doing a policing action. Obviously, they have the you know you always have the inalienable right of self defense. So this dude starts shooting at you, or gal starts shooting at you, you could shoot back. Obviously, um, and they might. And sometimes it's like, yeah, we want to capture this guy because this dude might have a lot of good intel. He's more valuable alive than dead. Or, you know, if it if the situation warrants, then they could authorize a lethal strike on him. So when you say a lethal strike, that just means getting somebody. Is it daytime more than likely, or is this mainly happening at nighttime? Or does is it both? Is it balanced? Both. Uh yeah, both. So if you're in an F-16 and you're you've gone through the training of launching missiles, dropping bombs, mm-hmm. firefighting, dogfighting. Yeah. It's daytime. Yeah. How far away do you get from a target like this if it's if it's told by your commander in the rules of engagement process that we're taking him out? Is it from a mile away? Is it right on top of him? How does that work out? Well, and it, first of all, it, it depends. Um, you know, what what weapon are you using? Are we dropping a bomb on this guy? Are we uh, you going to use the gun and strafe him? Do we have, you know, we have some air-to-ground missiles, you know, Maverick missiles. Um, so it depends on that, on the particular weapon that you are employing. Obviously, um, you know, depending on that weapon, then um, that that's going to dictate your standoff who, range. Who makes that decision, the commander? Well, the com- or, or, no, uh, at the, 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 the ground commander will say, take the guy out. Now you start talking with the JTAC. And now the JTAC is, they're generally versed on the type of ordinance that you carry. And initially he'll say, hey, I want this type of bomb. You know, and then you as the operator and as the subject matter expert, you're sitting there as like, hey, man, I see what you want to do. I'm actually, you know, we're we train on this stuff a little bit more than you do. This would, I think, would fulfill your your intent better than what you asked for. And so you have a dialogue between the two. It's like I can make this. Guy and you're in the away. air while this dialogue's going on. Yeah, you're talking. You've already know where he's at. Yep. It's a rural area. There's no town, no kids, no women around. He's out by himself on a dirt road, yep. rural area. It's not going to be a bomb, right? Oh, yeah. Really? No, oh, yeah. We could drop bombs. I mean, I've dropped bombs in the middle of cities. Uh, right. But with just one target out in a rural area, are you going to waste a bomb on him or is it going to come down? You will. Yeah. So that, that's up to, that just depends on how close you can get or w- it depends on what they, what they intend, you know, what, what's the intent? Cause you know, our bombs are very, are very, very accurate. Um, you know, and, and they have a large blast radius and stuff like that. So even if the guy moves or the gal moves, you know, um, bombs are, are, I would say one of our primary, um, one of the primary uh, weapons that we use. Because what does your face look like in the rear view mirror of this jet? Let's assume that there's a rear view mirror in this jet. I don't know if there is or not. SoCal Plains, Cheyenne, Wyoming, Kent State University football player, pilot school, Air Force. You go through all of your training. You go through combat, qu- combat training qualification. You go to Korea and you just sit there mm-hmm. waiting. Yeah. Then you get deployed to Germany and then you get deployed from the German station in Germany, deployed to Iraq. Yeah. 2007. 
and now you're dropping bombs and shooting missiles. Now what is your what now what's going through? Now are you like, wow, this is what I this is what I was waiting for my entire leading up to this time in my life? I think so. And I mean, absolutely. But that that happens after. Because at the first time, you know, obviously, you know, you we call a nine line. So it's basically passing of information. And as soon as a guy is like, I want a kinetic strike on this guy, and you start reading the nine line, like you've done it thousands of times in training, but then the burst of adrenaline you got is like, dude, stuff just got very real, you know? And the biggest thing you don't want to do is once again, I don't want to screw this up, you know? Cause this is, you know, you, you do something wrong. Maybe someone else might get hurt that you don't intend. And that's, you know, that's a terrible feeling, um, to have. So you're, you're, you know, the, uh, anxiety goes through the roof. The stress goes through the roof and in, in it's stress, it's excitement. And it is it's exactly what you said. It's like, man, you know, been working the last five years, six years to be at this point right now. Is this one. the first time you've ever done it now besides training? Is this the first time this first mission in Iraq is the first time you as a fighter pilot have been engaged in combat? Yeah. So the feeling. Well, you do, you do simu- you know, simulated stuff. Like it's not the first time I dropped a bomb off the jet. It's not the first Yeah, time but I'm talking that. about with the enemy there with yeah. the chance of getting well, fired back. Oh on. yeah, 100%. So what's crossing your mind with the chance that somebody can send a missile at me yeah. Not me personally, you, yeah. you're me. The training is there. You're, you're ready for it. You're going over it in your head a thousand times and you're qualified or you're, you're, you're not just qualified, but you're prepared for this. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're going through, you're, you know, it's, it's like anything else, you, you know, your, your mind's racing and going a million miles an hour, you know, there's a bunch of different contingencies, you know, and, and at the end of the day, it's just, you have to prioritize. Okay. What's my task right now, man? It's well, these guys want a bomb on this dude's head. So I need to put a warhead on a forehead right now. And that's basically what that's my, that is my chief concern, you know, cause it is, these guys are on the ground. These are the guys getting shot at. If the dude's dumb enough to point his gun up and take a shot at me, you know, I, I got a lot more to defend myself with than, you know, some of these guys on the ground. So, um, you know, the biggest thing is like, dude, I want to, you know, I want to take care of these, this, this target for our army, for our ground brethren. So you just made a comment about if he decides to raise his gun up on you, does this mean he might shoulder a missile launcher yeah. and send one your way? Yeah, they and have. And then your rate, your your the 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 detection process in this plane or the equipment and the what am I, what is the name of that? What what did you say was it goes off of energy? Does it does it pick so, up that energy right there? Well, so those shoulder launched weapons that they have, it's um it, it's kind of like a, a you know a, a stinger missile that we have. It's a shoulder launched. It's typically an IR guidance missile, which means infrared, so it goes after the heat signature of your plane. Um, there really is no warning that you see the because it's so it's it doesn't have because it's not generating any type of radar signature or anything like that. So it's not going to give you um, any type of warning, but you should be able to see it. You know, really? Yeah, you're going to see this thing come off, and it, it follows you know a corkscrew, a corkscrew type smoke pattern, and things of that nature. So, so you, what do you do? Pull straight up? Um, well, we have uh, countermeasures that we have on airplanes that allow us to do it. Our primary countermeasure for an infrared threat is going to be flares. We'll carry flares on a plane, so basically it'll help mask um, your heat signature. So it basically so it hides the plane. It, it confuses the missile. The missile is not sure what to go out, and the flares typically will burn brighter than your engine. So, you know, if, uh, if it's just a basic system, it'll go after the hottest spot that it sees. So typically it'll, it'll, it'll spoof off on a flare, but if it continues to track on your airplane, you know, you, oh, wait, you so the flare is getting hotter than the plane. So mm-hmm. it follows the flare because yeah. of the heat detection. Yeah. So what if, what, uh, where was I asking? Um, if there's no detection, if you don't see the missile coming and let's say that it, it doesn't hit the plane, yeah. how far can one of these missiles go and, and, and still have enough energy to do damage to an F-16? 
You know, it's well, they have to track on it. And most things will have, um, you know, like most of the bombs and weapons that we have have proximity fuses. So they don't have to hit you. They have to get close and they have a proximity fuse. So it gets close enough. Then the then the warhead goes off and they're typically built like cluster bombs or, you know, so they send shrapnel in huge areas um, is, is typical what happens. So these uh, SA, you know, these shoulder mounted missiles, they typically have to make contact with you. So it's, it's, uh, I'm not sure the exact ranges on how far they can go out. Um, if they go ballistic, you know, once again, you know, they have a short little sustained, um, boost phase, i.e. the rocket motor fires for only a few seconds. And then it's basically just going on to the kinetic energy that it has. If it's not tracking, on you, then it's really not much of a threat to an airplane. I mean, obviously you have what we call the golden BB. You're just flying around there and something just magically hits your plane. You know, it just wasn't your day, but, um, you know, and they, they could generally reach out, you know, I'd say three to four, three to five kilometers or so, you know, I'm, I'm sure someone's going to call me out on it, but, uh, I bet they don't. <laughs> so your lovely bride gave me this. I read it on the last podcast with her, the United States of America to all who, to all who shall see, these presents greeting this is to certify that to, wait i think this that's presence to all who shall see these presents greeting this is to certify that the president of the united states of america authorized by executive order may 11 1942 has awarded the air medal third oak leaf cluster to captain brian l moore for meritorious achievement while participating in aerial flight so it doesn't say anything about combat on here it doesn't say anything about engaging in combat or firefighting or dogfighting yeah. meritorious achievement while participating in aerial flight. Is that just a nice way of saying that you, that you accomplish something through firefight or can that be done in another way? Does this award go to somebody that's not in firefight? It, it, well, do you it even is. remember that award? Well, it, it continues going. I do. This is if you go, uh, Yeah, it's a, I mean, it goes in, it, it, it just, it, it explains the award afterwards. Um, that's the initial, cause that's essentially what you're doing in the nice way. Then it says, you know, you are doing stuff, you know, in the air and then it will go into the specifics as, as, as much as it can. Armed overwatch of coalition force in the volatile city of, so can you tell me what this is about or what happened? Yeah, so essentially it was a combat uh, uh, flight with me and a, another um, another guy who actually went to, um, you know, his name is uh, Josh Door, Trap Door, was uh, Traps' call sign. We were actually in officer school together. Um, so we are paired up, and uh, we're going down to the town of Basra. So Iraq is made up of three major cities. I mean, it's got a bunch of cities, but the major cities in Iraq are Baghdad's the largest. Um, Basra was the second largest, and then Mosul, uh, which is in the north, is the third largest. So Basra is right on the Gulf Coast. So it's on the south, uh, southern more, uh, southernmost large city in Iraq. Um, so we were down there. Um, there was a, a coalition forces, i.e. that it was a British JTAC that we were working with. Um, and essentially they had a situation in a school where basically Al Qaeda or ISIS, or I mean the Al Qaeda operatives, um, had taken over a school, barricaded themselves in and had about 30 hostages. And it was, a, they were saying it was about, uh, well, what was it? Sorry, I reverse that. It was about 30 Al-Qaeda officers, and they had about uh, uh, about 200 captives. You know, basically every two to 300 captives in the school. School children. Uh, yeah, captives. Not, I'm sure some are teachers, some are school children, this, that, the other. Um, so essentially, the armed overwatch is we checked in, and we were supposed to provide air support for a British negotiating team that was going in. So they had a couple of, you know, a couple of their tanks, 
uh, and up armored vehicles. They were going to go in there and try to negotiate with these guys. Um, as we checked in with them, they had us go forward and kind of scope the area looking for any snipers or anything that might be, um, you know, a damage to their, you know, their armored convoy. Uh, so we did that. We started looking at the schoolhouse and, you know, doing uh, what we call recce, which is, you know, reconnaissance of what's going on. And as we're doing that, my wingman um, says, hey, they're doing something because I, I basically assigned him like, hey, dude, you look at the school. I will follow the uh, I will clear the route that these guys are taking to the schoolhouse and make sure that they're not rolling into an ambush or something like that. So as we're doing that, they're getting fairly close. Uh, my wingman says, hey. I got something going on in the courtyard. So the school was built like just a big square with a big, large square courtyard in the middle. Um, so he gives me the coordinates to what he's looking at. I start looking at it and it looks like the guys are setting something up. Uh, after about a second, we could tell they're setting up a mortar tube. And as we start generating coordinates and figuring out what we're going to do, we see the first mortar go off. And as the first mortar goes off, the JTAC that I'm talking to, um, he, you could, you know, he gets on screaming because they had, um, they had bullseyed his location. So he's getting hit with the mortar shells. So he asked for, you know, immediate fires on that. And so this is, um, you know, immediate fires. And, and, and what complicated the issue was the fact that, you know, where they were, where these, um, where all the uh, captives were being held was only about 30 to 45 feet away. from Holy the shit. So, so they're letting this mortar off uh, against the Americans. They've bullet, they've bullet pretty much pinpointed where they're at. Yeah. He calls on the radio saying need fire strike, need or yeah. need airstrike, need airstrike. Now, yeah. now you're sitting in the jet with the airstrike readily available, but now you're sitting there going, wait, there's kids and teachers and civilians 30 to 45 feet from this mortar yeah. attack site. Yeah. Holy shit. So, you know, so it was one of the things, and we carry some, you know, a variety of weapon systems. And one of the ones that we were carrying was a low yield. So it doesn't have all the explosive it could have, and it's built for an urban scenario. And so basically that's what I did. Use the weapon and we could, we could tweak, um, you know, what the weapon does inside the cockpit as you release it. Um, and, and yeah, so I basically, you know, on, on my best judgment, put a delay fusing into the weapon. So it would go in a little bit before it blew up. Cause I only, you know, had about 30 feet to work with. And, um, and wait a minute, go in where the square, the yeah. courtyard. Yeah. So it would get way down deep towards the, where the actual mortar is coming out of. Yeah. It, Cause it was a 500 pound bomb. So I'm dropping 500 pounds inside a, a schoolyard that is, you know, and it's going to go boom, roughly four, 30 to 45 feet away from where there's a bunch of hostages. So, um, wow. so yeah, so that is, uh, essentially, you know, what, what I did is, uh, you know, put that in, put the bomb in. I had my, you know, my element mate was, uh, you know, looking around, getting ready for, um, possible, um, follow on attacks if we needed them. Um, anyway, you know, uh, extend out, get to the range. And, and obviously it was a, um, a, an emergency cast. So emergency close air support scenario. So I didn't have to go through all the wickets of getting clearance and everything like that. It was the right of self-defense. I was defending our coalition forces that were taking live fire. So they had, you know, in the course of me and uh, my element mate setting up this, uh, setting up this, uh, the, uh, this attack, you know, they probably got three mortar shells off. As I get the the third mortar shell off, I was uh, you know, I'm able to release my weapon, and uh, so the third mortar round goes. You could tell that they're starting to uh, load another round with our sensors, and the bomb actually hit one dude in the chest, went through him, and then exploded right at the base of the mortar tube, taking out the like three other guys. 
So, you know, obviously the, the fires immediately stopped, you know, and, um, and, you know, so we, we went, you know, weapons safe at that point and we stayed overhead to make sure there was nothing else going on. Um, and then they, they cleared us off target. So we cleared off We're you know, we're going back to our base and, you know, obviously the adrenaline, the exhilaration, you know, and I, I told this next to the birth of my kids, I was probably the proudest I've ever been in my life. Uh, what, before we get to how proud you are, because it's badass, like emotional, like so sick that you did this. When you, when they call you off, are they 100% for sure that there's no more gunmen in the room with the hostages? Or is that now up to the ground force that's, because the mortar's done? That's up to the ground force. I mean, there's nothing I can do in an airplane, you know, at that Inside. point. So they're saying, hey, stay overhead, you know, for, you know, sensor coverage. It might come down to, we might need some more ordnance, you know. Um, but right now, so they just, you know, hey, the, you know, they give you, like, because when you, when you, um, when you attack, you're, you know, that bomb is, specific or that attack is specific for that target. Once that target is neutralized, it's not, you know, necessarily like a free fire just because you dropped on one guy means you could John Wayne it and just start laying waste to everything. It's like, okay, I got clearance for this one target. That one target's eliminated. We are saved up. We're ready for the next target. So you just got emotional talking about this story in this metal. Are you t today? Do you know for a fact that those hostages were saved, or was it ever notified to you guys that ground force got in there and that the two hundred hostages were that were being held captive by these by Al Qaeda were, got out alive? So um, later on that day, the our intel officer he uh, he told us he's like, yeah, as soon as that the weapon went off, uh, every uh, the hostages or the the uh, the Al Qaeda surrendered. And release the hostages within ten minutes. Wow, dude! How freaking unbelievable! Two hundred of them, and you go in there with this is like literally the first time, like you you're in this much pressure. And you said that you can manipulate the bomb once it leaves the aircraft. No, prior you to can't. Release. Prior, prior to release, release. Yeah. you can manipulate it as far as the path it takes and the in the in the target that it's hitting. Yeah, holy shit! So you were like, that's how far away are you? Um. You know, it, it depends. Our typical fighter block is at the 12 to 14. So, you know, you're a couple miles away. You're 12 to 1400 what? 12 to 14,000 feet. feet. Yeah. So you're a couple miles. You're more than a couple miles yeah. away. And you hit the freaking bullseye through the chest mm -hmm. and then take out the rest of the three as it passes through them yeah. with a 500 pound bomb. Yeah. Holy shit. That's why people like need to know that this award exists. And I've known you for several years. I've known Rachel for over 20 years and I never knew you got this. And dude, this, this, to know that you did it, man, it just like, I don't know. Like I, I was talking to the guys telling you about that. When, you know, I found out he went up in the blue angels here lately. Yeah. His exact word, besides the birth of my kids, yeah. you know, going up in this jet. And I told you that last week, yeah. if, besides the birth of Alyssa, like going up in one of those things is like my main goal in life. Yeah. Now you're up in one yeah. and now you do this dude and save this many freaking innocent lives from these pricks that are trying to put their power into this innocent world and try to really take over the rest of the world. Kind of. Yeah. Wow, Brian, congrats, man. I'm going to, I I wish I had a color copy to frame, but Rachel is going to get me a picture of the original so I can post it for our viewers and our listeners to listen or to, to view. But man, this is, it's just humbling to read it, what you did and to know that you under this much pressure that our American soldiers and fighter pilots perform like this daily. Like you say it with a grain of salt because it is a grain. Like this is what you guys do. Yeah. This is what your job is. Yeah. It's not that you're going up there. Raw, raw. Give me a medal. This is what you clocked in to do that day. Yeah. Period. It's yeah. your job. Yeah. 
exceptionally performed and, and, and executed, but God dang it, bro. I mean, you, you cry when you talk about it. I want to cry with you, but I can't imagine what you're feeling when you're on your way back to the base after, after you, I mean, is it, is it now can we be cliche with the top gun when they get out of the plane and they're all hooping and hollering or is it still just low key Brian did his job, get back to work kind of attitude? No, it, it, it is. Um, I mean, like you said, you go through so many emotions. I remember just kind of shaking in the cockpit, just like, Holy crap. A, you know, it's humbling because, there's a lot of there's a lot of guys out there that have trained their whole life and just never got the opportunity. So you're, you know, you're so fired up. You're you're so glad that you didn't screw it up. And then number one, and then number two, you're just you're so exhilarated that it, that it went and you had the tangible result. And then you're humbled by the facts like there's a lot of guys out here that are just as skilled, if not more skilled than I am, that never got this opportunity. You know, to to take this training and to actually do this you know um so that part of it is awesome you know the uh, i think the the icing on the cake was the fact that um you know I, I, this happened with one of my bros you know a guy that we were at officer school together we were in the same flight what was his nickname school. trap 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 door trap door yeah but let's not let's not take for lightly the fact that your job was to stop the mortar attack through air and, and firefight. Well, they'd never, yeah, we were just there to, you know, the mortar happened secondary. We were there to provide to overwatch. Overwatch for the ground crew. Yeah, they never knew that there was a mortar So there. once the mortar goes into effect and you get your mission or your, your instructions now, yeah. rules of engagement, mm-hmm. is that a rule of engagement of what you're getting ready to do? Because that's not really a rule. That's more of an it, instruction. Well, it's like you said, you have, we always have the, ina- the inalienable right of self-defense. Self-defense. So when coalition forces are under, you know, attack and we are, we are an, uh, an extension of their, uh, of them, you know, so they were, had direct line of sight, direct fire. Then we could, uh, we could institute our, our right of self-defense. But what I'm going with it is that you still do your job. If that bomb lands 30 feet where the hostages are, and you still take out the mortar and kill the Al Qaeda, yeah. but it take the, taking the chance of killing these innocent people, you could have very easily done that. And you didn't. That's what's so amazing about this award is that nobody that was supposed to get hurt hostages, you know, they were supposed to get hurt by these hostages, you know, these terrorists, you save them. That's what's amazing to me is that none of them got hurt. They get out alive. I wonder what happens to them if you don't, you know, that what the end of the day, they could have been just slaughtered. Let's not, let's not just sugarcoat it. They could have just been mowed down if the, if the Al Qaeda didn't get what they wanted. So what you did, I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure that this happens. And I think that what, what's what's crippling, I think, and, and this is just my opinion, is that we never hear about this kind of shit in the media. We don't understand through our through our media outlets that this award is out there for Brian Elmore. That I want to make sure, yeah, Brian Elmore. That Captain Brian Elmore. This stuff needs to be known that we that this stuff is happening. That people are being protected by this. And with your skill set, I mean, I'm not trying to dramatize something because i know it's a job but it's an emotional part of the job when you put the human aspect into yeah, it and kids absolutely. into it in a schoolhouse what kind of coward goes and takes over a freaking schoolhouse this is bullshit yeah. so i mean man kudos to you that's i wanted to learn about it i wasn't sure how far you could go into it but to know i like to know it, you're not sitting here saying rah rah look at me because i've heard this in the military that it's not kosher yeah. to to go on a mission and then come out and write a book. I don't know for sure. I don't know about the commercialization of it. I'm not getting into that. This is something that I think the American public deserves to know and that should know is that this stuff is happening 
from our qualified military. Yeah. I don't know if that sounds the, like I'm wording it the right way. I, and I know that you don't give me that Rachel didn't bring this to say rah, rah, because if that was the case, I'd have known about this years ago. You know what I'm saying? Wade's never even told me about this. So to learn the story, it's amazing to me. I don't know if that's a good place to end for today. Yeah. I don't know if it is because before we end it, I, we haven't even gotten to what you do now. Yeah. You came here today in uniform. What yeah. kind of uniform is this? Is it flight suit? Yeah, just Navy uniform. This is a Navy. You were out at Top Gun? Yep. You were out at Top Gun today flying? Uh, I was out with the, the aggressors. With the aggressors. Yep. Yep. This is your job? Yeah, or part-time job. It's my side hustle, I guess I could say. Side hustle <laughs> as a fighter pilot instructor? instructor? Yes. Flying commercially for American? Yes. Okay, so we still have that part of the career to go over, but we're not done with the military. There's That's one mission out of 103 or 113? 107. 107 combat missions. Do they all take place in this tenure of, in Iraq at this one time? No, it was uh, two deployments. Two deployments. Yeah. So is this a good place to end before we get into the next deployment? Or is there more, is there more that happens in this deployment that, that didn't constitute an award but stands out in your mind of, of part of your career as a military fighter pilot? Yeah, that, I mean, I think that was, you know, uh, honestly, yeah, I didn't even know that Rachel had uh, printed that out. Uh, I couldn't even tell you where Surprised that was. Surprised you with yeah, it. <laughs> so, yeah, button hooked me. So you didn't know, uh, this isn't hanging on your wall? Uh, well, we do have something hanging on the wall. So I, uh, um, for that thing, I do have, I don't, not the citation, um, but what I did keep is I had a flag in my jet. So I always, you know, when I was in Iraq, um, you know, you get, uh, people that, you know, uh, first responders, firemen, um, you know, uh, police departments, they request a flag. So I was, you know, I'd always take every mission, I'd take a flag. And then when I got done with the mission, I would print up a certificate. Hey, this, this flag flew over Iraq or over Baghdad or wherever spot I was at. And I, I certify that at this day and time, this happened, you know, and, uh, mostly it was to, you know, a lot of the firemen, um, you know, lost, lost some bros in September 11th, uh, police departments and, and stuff like that. So, you know, once I got back from mission, I'd, I'd uh, certify their, the flag and then I'd send it off to whatever wow, base so they had. Cool. So I had one for that and, you know, selfishly I kept the flag. Did you keep any others? Uh, no, I, I gave, I gave everything else away. Um, but I kept that one flag for myself. So that's actually framed in, in our uh, heritage room at the house. This is um, a stupid question. If you did this for every mission, how did you get the flags? We have, there's like commissaries, you know, on, on the base. It's, so you go in and buy a flag. Yeah. Just go in and buy a flag. They have that many American flags re- suitable to sell right there, ready to sell. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Why? For, for instances like this, obviously. for instances like this, you know, there's people that, that go out there. I mean, and obviously we could, we had some on order and we brought a bunch with us for that as well, but you can go out there and, and buy the, buy the flags at the commissary if you wanted to. So I, uh, on this wall over here, I'll show you that I did a thing with, um, a, a Navy seal that was injured in combat mm-hmm. and he gave me a, uh, I was, I've been given some freedom flags and coins yeah, and they're folded up and I have them on the wall over here. Is that like the same thing where they had a, is a freedom flag kind of the same thing? Like it's, you're fighting for our freedom and this was a flag that I had him during this mission. Yeah. It typically, I mean, I'd have to look at it, but yeah. So you'd, you'd basically do that. I mean, we had a bunch of, um, one of my buddies was a, uh, Anaheim, uh, California police officer. And he, he put in a request and then, you know, so I, I sent him the flag, Hey, this mission on this date, it flew over here. And then he sends me back a picture for a week. That flag flew over, you know, the, uh, um, the Anaheim police department, you know, so it, it was just kind of a cool thing, you know, um, of taking care of the guys, you know, 
respectively take care of you because you know hey we're doing our thing overseas but these are the guys that are taking care of the families the friends and everything at home so yeah i mean obviously it's it's a huge amount of mutual respect and mutual kudos if you will good night dude. It's on this on this certain award that we just mentioned and we just talked about do you how long into your into this deployment did this take place is it a month in three months in i'm trying to remember uh is this your first mission no, it's a uh, first point. I'd, I'd have to look at my, I want to say it was about, I want to say it was, it was probably about, uh, about two thirds the way through. And we were going for, uh, at that, on that deployment, it was only a, uh, it was a 120 day deployment. So a four month deployment. Uh, I think it ended up being a little bit longer. Are fighter pilot pilot deployment shorter than, than ground ground support? They, they typically are like the army deployments that we were seeing a lot of those guys, those, those guys were deploying for a year. Yeah. So, yeah. so why is that the stress of being a pilot or the, you got to get back here and, and keep your mind. I mean, all of you got to keep your mind, right? Yeah. I, you know what? I, I, I think, uh, it's just the way they, they worked it out just, um, you know, cause there's so many units and I, I don't know if it's availability of parts. Um, I, I can't really intelligently answer that. Uh, they haven't, uh, I've known since we started deploying, they've, they've increased the length of the deployments for the air crew now. So I think there are six to eight month deployments now that they're doing. And I, I just think, uh, when that was just the, the, the amount of time that we were slotted to go there for this particular deployment. So I'd say this was probably about two and a half months in. And Rachel's with you in Iraq. Uh, she went on the second deployment, so she, she was still at home. But you're, this one. are you married at this point or just dating engaged? Yeah. I want to say, no, I think we are, we are, uh, we're not even engaged. I think we're just dating at this time at this point. So is there like a, is there, how does that work in a relationship when you're over there? Do you make nightly phone calls home? You can't. So she doesn't yeah. know if you're alive or dead some nights. Yeah. Yeah. It, she doesn't. I mean, we'd send emails and that's about that, you know, pr principle. It was, you know, it was email, um, uh, talk, you know, and, and it was one of those things where, you know, are there phones on base? Yeah. Are there, a, or do you have the ability to, you know, to talk to people if you want to? Yes. But at the end of the day, those phones, I, I looked at it this way. We were on a big army base. You know, and the army guys, they were going out there. They were, in my mind, they're my heroes. They, these were the guys that were going out, you know, into the streets, just going in the lion's den day in and day out. What I didn't want to do was like, dude, you know, them talking to their families and doing the phone and the internet, that's all, that's all them. You know, my work well, computer, awesome. I would, I would send a, you know, I would send a, uh, uh, an email to the family, you know, once a week or something like that. Just let them know, Hey, everything's, you know, everything's good. Are, is it buddy, buddy? Is it, is there, is there like a sense of when you're military and you're in theater like that, are you all bros, no matter what branch you're representing? Oh, I think there's always healthy, healthy competition. But at the end of the day, you're in a, you know, you're in a, a stressful environment. So I think there is, there is that level of, you know, Hey, nobody's going to get, you know, unless you've been here, no one's going to get it. You know, I can't ex really explain it to you. Um, I, I could try to explain, but unless you've been there, smelled it, you know, you're not going to get it, you know, and, and especially when you got on base, you know, it was the, the base that we're on in particular, they, uh, you know, the, the affectionate name for it was called Mortaritaville because every day we get mortared, uh, at seven in the morning and four, 4 PM. As, as the guys were going to work, they'd launch a couple mortars on base. And as they're coming back from work, they'd launch a couple more at us. So we had, you know, you're doing ducking covers all the time. Mortars are going off all over the base and stuff like so that. So you're hearing this shit all the time, seeing it, feeling it. Mm -hmm. It's landing close to you. Yeah. Are you also seeing down brothers, fallen soldiers? Are they being brought back to the base injured? Is that where this takes place too? Yeah. So this has got to be one of the most mentally challenging parts of being a soldier. It's got to be. 
it's it, it's stressful. It's yeah. got to just fuck. I mean, I yeah. hate the cuss, but it's just got to yeah. kick your ass. It it you know it does it, it you know and it's and that's the one thing like you know you go over there and the I'd say one of the great parts about it was the fact that you could compartmentalize. You could you could say, hey, I'm over here, so you could put it in a spot in your brain, and what happens here largely stays here. You know what I mean? And so I could go back home and be the person I normally am, you know, type thing. But when you're there, you're like, hey, we're here to do a mission. So a lot of the guys, you know, in our time, what what limited time off when we had time off? I mean, what are you going to do? You're in a combat zone. So a lot of us would go over to the hospital and we'd just volunteer. Like I, if they needed to make oh, wow. blood kits or whatever they needed to, it's like, hey, man, we're here. Because obviously you're bringing back brothers and sisters in arms that have, have been hit, you know. So whatever whatever we can do to, you know, lighten your guys' load. And, you know, if you need a trauma kit, if you need, you know, I, I'll sit here for eight hours and I'll put bandages together for you. I don't care. Well, that's so awesome. You know, so, it, but it, it is, it's a camaraderie. It's like, hey, we're all in this together type thing. Would this, would this be, is it safe to say that that's probably the number one cause of PTSD is seeing fallen brothers? I mean, I know there's stress in combat, but sure. it seems to me like your minds are wired for it at that point. Like you're ready, you're willing, you're able, you want it. Like that's like your that's like your touchdown, you know, uh, touchdown drive. But is that is it safe to say that that's a lot of like, t- if I'm if I see you hurt and you're my bro just over here, yeah, and I see you get hurt, yeah. I'm like, oh my god, I hate, I can't yeah. imagine it over there with such devastation and such consistency well and, and and you know and and once again there's you see a lot of things yes i think you know seeing your brother or sister there one minute gone the next i mean that's you know you're you're there and 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 you know a lot of the things it's not just seeing it it's the senses like you know if you did athletics or anything like a certain smell every now and then if i hit a, a certain smell hits me it takes me right back to high you know my, my high school locker room or something like that yep. you know those are, are certain instances like even to this day you know, as strange as enough, like there's certain things that will trigger me back there that I don't, I don't like, you know? So Uh, do you, do you suffer from it at all? uh, You know? Yeah. No, I'm not going, I'm not going to go into that on it, but it's like, what I'm saying is there's things that will snap you back. there. Oh, okay. So you're just saying such, just search. Yeah. Certain senses like, you know, to this day, um, you know, as as funny as it is, I can't stand the smell of somebody going to the taking a poop when I'm brushing my teeth <laughs> because you're doing the, we, you know, we had these facilities on, on the base and it was, they were called Cadillacs and you just called them Cadillacs to make them sound better than what they were. But there was, you know, sinks, showers, toilets. So every night you go brush your teeth. There's always, you know, dudes in there dropping a Duke. So to this day, I can't stand, you know, well, I don't so, know if anybody could, I know, but that, but that was just your, you know, just every day for you there. Yeah. I have a, a really uh, great family friend that did, you know, a couple tours in Vietnam as a door gunner on a Huey. And even to this day, he's, you know, because he was there, um, he doesn't like his feet being wet. Can't stand it when his feet are wet because the two years he was in Nam. So his, he can't swim? His feet were never dry. No, when he's swimming, it's fine. But when his feet get really sweaty or stuff like that, you know, he is like, yeah, for two years, your feet were never dry. Really? So I mean, just these little things, little that, things. You, that you don't know unless you've been there. Is, the, is there, I'm not trying to go into PTSD, but is there a big, is it a, is it a problem amongst the, 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 you know, the guys that do what you do, the combat pilots, the, the war pilots, the fighter pilots, is there a lot of PTSD in that job or was it mainly in the ground force? You, you know, I can't, I can't, you can't speak on that. Well, I, I just don't know. I'm, I'm not going to throw numbers out there willy nilly. Um, like anybody that does those things, I mean, it's, you, you know, you, you, 
you see things and, and even, even if you're not directly involved in it, like you're, you're talking to guys on the radio, you're seeing them, you're doing these armed overwatch. So you're, you're the guys going over there, you know, especially, you know, the guys, uh, you know, we, a lot of them and a lot of us in the fighter, po- uh, fighter pod community make fun of them a little bit, you know, the predator drone guys, but those are the guys day in and day out that, you know, those drones are always airborne. They're always seeing stuff. You know, the sensors that they have on their drones are even better than the fighters. So they're, they, and they are locked into the guys comms, you know, they're seeing this daily. Um, you know, so I, I absolutely think, you know, and everybody, everybody handles it different. Everybody compartmentalizes it different. Um, so I, I really can't say anytime you go to any, you know, traumatic event like that, you know, PTSD is obviously something that gets thrown around willy nilly, you know, someone gets in a car accident. Do they, do they technically have PTSD? And they probably do, you know, it's just a traumatic thing. Like you're, you're going to get on edge when, when your body, and it's just a natural defense system, when your body, you know, when your body is seeing similarities in a situation that cause them great harm, it's going to get, you're going to get anxious. You're going to get apprehensive. Your adrenaline's going to start going because now your body's trying to figure out fight or flight, (laughs) you know, honestly. So I think it it goes hand in hand with any type of traumatic event, you know, um, but you know, and everyone handles it differently. So I, I really can't, uh, you know, as far as I'm, I'm not going to throw out a percentage and stuff. And thankfully there are, you know, the biggest thing is, you know, when, when you're looking at that type of thing, you know, one of the big things for soldiers coming back is, you know, the suicide rates are really high and they have been, you know, um, especially since we started combat operations in you know, 2002, essentially, um, you, you just can't help, but to take some of this stuff with you, you know, thankfully there are, um, you know, the, the department of defense is, has largely, um, you know, made that a priority. So there are where the, when we first started this, there probably weren't the resources allocated and the resources available. Now I can emphatically say they are, you know, for the guys, you know, having to raise their hand and, and it used to be a, a, a negative stigmatism like, Hey, obviously I got to raise my hand. I need to talk to somebody. And the, you know, the stereotype was, okay, you're, you can't hack it. You're, you're a wuss, you're a sissy. You can't do it. Well, nowadays it's like, there is no shame. It's like, look, you know, we all, we all hit our breaking point and there is not one overriding, um, you know, uh, you know, there, it's not a binary scale, you know, everybody has, has experienced, um, different amounts of this trauma, you know, and, and not one person, unless you were, you were there or you're this actual person, can you judge another, you know, person for what they said or what they saw, what they experienced? So where, where does that leave us with your, with your military career? Does the second deployment happen right away after you get back to the States? Uh, so the air force at the time, we're on about a 15 month deployment cycle. So as soon as you get back on base, your clock starts. And, and so I deployed again, I think we got back around June of 2000. It was June, 2008. My next deployment was in, uh, what was it? It was probably December of nine. Yeah. November 9th. Yeah. December of uh, 2009 to 2010. For another four months. Uh, This one was actually five. So a little bit longer. And this is still with the air force. Still with the air force. So we need to, on the next episode, we need to get into that deployment and then the transition from air force to Navy. Yeah. That was part of your military career, which is where you're at currently. Yes. Okay. So this is all going to take place is this where you ended your career with, as far as your second deployment, that was the end of your combat career? That was the end of my, uh, con- so yeah, second deployment, that was the three years I was, you know, uh, it was in Germany. So after that, uh, you know, the, uh, I finished up in Germany and they sent me to a training command rotation. 
Um, so I went back to the schoolhouse and what was your choice to do? Would you I, wanted to go back? Oh yeah. I, I tried to, freaking crazy, I tried to dude? stay in. So, um, well, Libby, is it normal to not only get to serve two and then come back or what's the, what's the deal there? Well, it's just timing. I mean, there's, there's lots of guys. I have, uh, several of my buddies, uh, I have a, uh, uh, a guy I serve with in Germany, you know, he stayed, you know, he bounced around, stayed in, um, the fighter squadrons and he, you know, in his timing allowed him to do that. He has over a thousand combat hours, you know? Um, so I would assume he's probably sitting at about 200, 250 combat missions. And is he done you know? now? No, still, uh, he's still, I think he's, he's, uh, well, he was the commander of one of our, our combat squadrons. So he, you know, he's bouncing back and forth. You know, I tried to stay at our particular base because as we came back from the second deployment, uh, it was around 2010, that's when Libya started kicking off. So I tried to stay so I could go to Libya, you know, and, and, and do that stuff because I was one of the senior, more experienced guys. And that, that was actually doing the job, which is suppression of enemy air defenses. So I was, Super excited to go go shoot one of our harms at uh, at those guys. So, yeah, yeah. but it, it the request and appeals got denied, so they forced me to go to to a training command rotation. Okay, so before we leave today, yeah, will you talk about this man real quick? Because I want to get into this before the end of our conversation next time too. This was another bro. Uh-huh. You remember him, Dirk? Is that what Rachel was saying? Yeah, yeah. So he was. Uh, um, Man, that was a, so he was a guy that I went to pilot training with. So, uh, the Genesis of Eric Ziegler, uh, call sign Dirk, Dirk Ziegler. Um, he grew up in uh, Fargo, North Dakota, you know, went to the air force Academy, was a civil engineering major. I met him when we were both in pilot training. So he was the class right behind mine. Um, and, uh, we, you know, went through pilot training, um, actually went through, F-16 school. He was in the class behind me in F-16 schoolhouse. He showed up to Korea right after I did. So we are, our careers paralleled each other. We both went to Germany together. We were actually sweet mates. Um, if you, uh, in, uh, for that first deployment. So he was my roommate for that first deployment. Um, after, after Germany or, or, or paths, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, divulged. Um, and he, and I'm going to look at that. You want to read on him? Yeah, which one? Yeah, so there's, that's, yeah, I can see his picture there. I mean, look at this. Sorry. Yeah, there's Dirk. There's a couple guys, actually, so I know these people very well. I actually hit, this guy was in my pilot training class, Giglio. Um, Nicholas Giglio. Yeah, Nick Giglio. Uh, So anyway, it was, uh, and he, he went by call sign Reverend, but for Dirk, so he was my sweet mate, or past diverge. So anyway, he's, you know, talented fighter pilot talented guy. And he, um, was got selected to go to the weapons instructor course. So he was going to, um, going to go to the air force equivalent of top gun, if you will, for the, you know, just for the viewing audience. And right before his, uh, he was actually, it was his last flight before he went into the course and he was doing just a training, training flight to get prepped. And, um, you know, these, these planes are, they're phenomenal aircraft as far as, you know, but the performance, you know, we always said in the community, it's like the day you stop respecting the F-16 is the day it kills you. And these planes could absolutely outperform your body. And on his day, uh, on this day, Dirk was doing a training mission. And, um, you know, through the course of the training mission, he, he experienced a G lock. So lost consciousness and he, uh, he put his jet into the, uh, into the Nevada desert. Really? Yeah. So is this, is when you say G lock, that means that you are you your you G shock 
is or you 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 hit so many G's. So basically, I mean, touched on it a little bit. Is basically, you know, he was pulling high G's for so long, and you know, and it it, it it's a, a bunch of different factors that go into you know, your tolerance that day, and it varies like anything else. This particular day, you know, he experienced a, a G induced loss of consciousness, which we call a G lock, and so he went to sleep and never woke up. So why would he be? Why is it just a mistake on his part to be hitting that many G's for that long? Well, it, it, you know, there's, there's a multitude of different things, you know, and, and it could be the onset, you, you know, unless you're there, you, you, you don't know. And it happens. I mean, guys G lock all the time, or I wouldn't say all the time, but it, it happens. It's not a, this is not a isolated incident or anything like that. And he was doing a particular high, um, energy maneuvering fight, um, where it called for to be able to be lethal. You had to be under heavy G or high G's for long periods of time. And he you know, succumbed to it. And, uh, he's, uh, his jet, uh, was put in the ground in Nevada. Is that an F 16 that he's standing in front of right it there? Is. Yeah. You can tell just by looking at it or do you just know that that's all he flew? Well, that's all I flew, but you could tell because it's the only one in our inventory that has an intake underneath the nose. That's out in Fallon. Uh, we have some in Fallon, but, uh, yeah, he, but he was a uh, air force at the time. So both of the weapon schools, the Navy weapons schools in Fallon, Nevada, and then the Air Force weapons schools in um, at Nellis, which is in Las Vegas. So, did you fly that jet today? No. Not that current, not that exact one. But no, what did you no, fly today? An F five. So, for the, the the viewing audience, is if you ever saw the movie Top Gun, the MiG twenty eight, that that was actually our unit that did the first Top Gun. So they were the adversaries or the the MiGs in that one. So that was the plane I was flying today. It looks kind of like that. It just doesn't have the weapons on it, or what? Uh, it, it's a small, it's a different, you know, twin engine jet. So it's a, it's a, it's a different aircraft. It, they it used to be frontline, um, combat aircraft. The air force retired them from active, um, service. And I, I believe it was, I want to say the early eighties. Um, so we no longer fly them actively in combat. Uh, it was, they did use them in Vietnam and, and things of that nature. And there's several countries that still fly the F five, uh, in an active combat role. So this is Dirk's family that has built this? So Holbrook Farms, and I know Rachel's a little bit smarter on that. So um, while you heard about Holbrook Farms was basically started um, by a family, they call it a gold star family. So whenever you hear that is essentially um, uh, a family that has lost a service member um, during, you know, uh, it, during a, a period of combat, which is we are currently in a, a period of combat. So um, what they did is they had some, had some land and it's really therapeutic for mostly family members. And Holbrook Farms, what they allow is, um, and Rachel could get more in the specifics from what I understand, is th th these people have just opened up um, their land and their farm for th therapeutic, uh, therapeutic retreats for spouses that have lost service members in combat, you know, because it, it's a very, it's a very tough, you know, it's, it's a very tough thing, especially for the family members that, you know, sometimes might feel a little bit that they're abandoned by the military, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, right or wrong or whatever the case may be. So they have these, these, uh, people, um, that have opened up their farm, opened up their land and have, uh, allowed, um, groups of people to get together, um, spouses that have lost loved ones. And, um, you know, and it's, it's very, therapeutic for them just to get together, share stories, share commonalities, remember their loved ones, uh, in a nice calming environment, you know? And, uh, I know Sarah, which was, uh, which was Dirk's, uh, widow, you know, she has gone several times and she, you know, can't do anything more than just completely talk up the place because now you start building a, uh, a secondary core group of shared experiences with these people that have, 
that have lost loved ones, you know, and you find strength and solidarity in, in similar stories and, you know, in, in, in similar um, emotions that they've obviously been sharing. So this is a, a charity now it's where a charity, people yeah. can donate to it. Great question. I, I'm, I'm sure they uh, I'll get yeah, some Rachel, information. Yeah. From Rachel, Rachel has that, um, has all that. Cause I know she works a lot with, uh, with Sarah on that. And, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to spread any false information. Um, so yeah, Rachel would be the, the point of contact on that. Yeah. Cause I'd like to get the word out on it for mm -hmm. our listeners and viewers to be able to become a part of, cause it seems like a great, I mean, anything that can give therapy, you know, usually it's, PTSD and the soldiers need the therapy. This is for the family members that lost a hero or a soldier yeah. during a combat period. Like you said, yep. Awesome. Holbrook farms retreat dedicated to military survivors, survivors of heroes. We'll get some more information about that out there. I'll get this with the office and, to, and get it up on the website after I talk with Rachel about how to become involved. Pretty cool, man. Very cool. Brian Moore. We still have two left. I said we only had two left last time, but now we got second, <laughs> deployment. Yeah. And then we're going to go into your commercial career because I have a lot of questions on the commercial career. Sure. Because I travel commercially. Yeah. I don't have my own jet like you. Yeah. Well, you kind of do. Well, that's someone else owns it. I don't pay for it. <laughs> How do I get to go up in this jet? Let's just, come on, just tell me. I'm what just, I'm telling like I said, we'll, we'll try to, we'll try to work it, man. It's a, it's a fickle, it's a fickle beast, but, uh, you know, we'll, like I said, I, I got your name out there and, you know, obviously it's, a. Uh, it's, uh, you know, needs of the military at the time, you know, and obviously these are, you see like the blue angels and the thunderbirds do the same thing. You know, they, um, put, you know, dignitaries and cause it's a great re recruiting tool for the military. And that's essentially what it's all about is, uh, just recruiting, um, you know, cause it is an experience that a lot of people don't get to do. No. And, um, you know, and when, you know, especially, you know, see a lot of it, actors, sports, uh, sports, uh, uh, folks, um, a lot of, you know, obviously, um, folks in local government and stuff like that definitely get to go up there because they, you know, it, it helps garner support for both the Navy and the Air Force alike. You know, you get these people to go in there and it's like, hey, this is what we're doing. These and they get a they get a small tidbit of how highly skilled, highly trained um, the, all the personnel that do this are. And it, it gives them it's, a, you know, hey, we're not a bunch of just cowboys going out there and, you know, just shining our butts, if you will, uh, at the, at the taxpayer's expense They, you know, everything we do is very methodical and very purpo uh, purposeful. And they get a small glimpse of that, which garners respect and also, uh, you know, allows them to say, Hey, you know, we, now we see what these guys and gals are doing. We respect their job. Well, what, what can we do to help facilitate, you know, help them out? Maybe, you know, uh, better inform the public of, Hey, you know, the jet noise, you know, going off a tangent, and this is one plot, you know, one, possible scenario, but it's like, Hey, you know, maybe they're, you know, they get the local government to go up in a plane just because they might be getting a lot of complaints about the jet noise. Okay. How can now we, now we have common experiences after going up in an aircraft. Now, how, how do we, you, you see what we deal with. We understand, you know, the constraints are being put on you. How do we find some common ground, yeah. you know, bottom line. Okay, so we can go to work on this again. Like I said, I've been, yeah, I've been, uh, I'm throwing it out there, dude. I'll let you know. I can't, I can can't you just sneak, it. Can you just sneak me in? Well, you know, you can do anything. Your, you can do anything like this. Yeah, you can do anything <laughs> once, man. And uh, it might be more emotional. The, the repercussions might be more emotional for me than you. So <laughs> I just, I respect the heck out of what you do, what Rachel did, and what your brothers and sisters do. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It's humbling to know that it's going on when we don't even know it's going on. You know, I didn't know about this school that you've saved from terrorists. I don't even know what to call them. I guess it'd sound ignorant to cuss them, but 
I don't like them. We yeah. got we got the number one the other day, I guess, huh? Well, until the next number one pops until up. But I mean, it's uh, nice thing is, is you know, uh, I think uh, the current administration said it best is like you know, our, our reach is in fact long, and if you can continue on, you know, on that path, and like, dude, we we will we will spare no expense, you know. And I I thought I found it exceptionally um, poignant that they named the operation after the Arizona girl. Um, that this guy had murdered and, you know, said, uh, you know, potentially sexually assaulted and all that, you know, so the fact that, uh, you know, even the higher ups in the military are, are cognizant of the damage and the collateral, the collateral damage that these individuals are inflicting or inflicting, you know, is, I, I think it's exceptionally poignant that, you know, that they pay homage to that. And the fact that they named the operation after that girl, Kayla was, was pretty sweet. Very sweet. Yeah. On a lighter note. Sure. What do you do for fun after you've done this? I mean, is there anything that I, and I don't want to bring up kids in the backyard and wiffle ball. I yeah, get it. Yeah. I understand fatherhood. Yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, it's, it's astounding. Yeah. But what in the hell could float your boat now after you've done this? Is the rest of life just boring as shit? Basically you're asking if I'm a burnout. <laughs> no, I no, know you're no, not a burnout. No, no, no. I'm just I, saying I mean, like, yeah. is there anything that could get you to go, holy shit? Like, I know there's not a roller coaster. No, there, there can't no. be anything like that. You know, uh, honestly, every now and then, you know, Rachel and I, I love traveling. You know, obviously that's the, the, the cool thing. I mean, because there's just so many, so many cool places in the world. So many awesome people out there, you know. Um, just going out there and experiencing everything you can. I mean, there there have been some, some things, uh, you know, um, Rachel and I, we ran with the bulls in Pamplona. So that was, that was pretty fun. Um, did some bungee jumping in New Zealand. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, you know, there, there's always experiences out there. Is there anything that would scare you? Oh, I'm not saying, oh, I was scared. I had the crap scared out of me in both of those instances. I mean, I, I, I think if you, when you stop getting scared, that's when it gets boring. That's when, well, that's when it gets scary. Cause then you're like, well, maybe I'm dead on the inside. I don't know. Um, so I think you should always be apprehensive to that stuff. I haven't jumped in a cage with a shark yet. That would be pretty, probably pretty cool. Um, with the shark or like or in the cage, the shark, like with a shark swimming up the shark you. still in around the cage. Yeah, I don't I think, think you want to be in there with one. So either the shark's in the cage, I'm outside or I'm in the cage and the shark's outside either way, not, not cohabitating with that shark. Um, but you know, there's a lot of cool experiences out there. So, um, obviously if, you know, when you get to the point where like, ah, oh, there's really nothing out there for me. And it's like, you know, it, it, you know, home, you know, in my own, per, in my own personal opinion, it's like, well, that, that's no way to go through life. You always want to have some other experience that, to look forward to and stuff like that. And there's just a lot of cool things to do. There are, you know, so we're home. I mean, it's, we're lucky to get to do them exactly because of what you did. It really is. I mean, that's what the soldier, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that cause you've heard it a million times, but people need to understand that our freedoms are because of this kind of story. I think it's freaking amazing what you guys do. And I told Rachel, I told you this last time, it's like, what kind of guy am I not to sign up? But again, I've done my part in different ways sure. of promoting it, yeah. of getting the story out there. Not everybody's going to be a fighter pilot. Not everybody's going to be a Green Beret or a SEAL Team Six or Four. And these is just or just a a, a a medic. I mean, what the medics see? Oh man, it's amazing. Like people hear medic. Oh, you went to war. What'd you do as a medic? Well, what? I mean, do you talk about seeing it all? Man, you yeah. talk. That's a shit job. That is. Uh, well, you, you know, I think it's. I would think, you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't think there's a more, uh, uh, respected guy in any type of platoon than the, than the medic or the corpsman, it, you know, cause they're your bros. 
you know, when, when in your darkest hour, that's the guy that's going to be there to put you together, hold your insides and put them back in or, you know, whatever. I mean, the stuff that these guys have to do while under fire is, you know, they're going beyond just returning fire. These guys are now doing this while patching up their buddies, you know, and it's, it's, I, I, my hat's off to them and it's absolutely, I have a friend, I have a friend, I have a friend, Joey Wegman that served several tours as a medic. Yeah. And like, he when you when you think about what he saw and yeah. like what is how his mind thinks now, mm-hmm. I just sit there and go nobody nobody is just you know what you said when you see you get in a fender bender and you're like traumatic of another car wreck or like if you see your kid run out in the street and somebody slams on their brakes you can't help but think of that it might cause some stress down the road sure. but to see what that meant what Joey saw and then when I'm sitting around with him and trying to read him or, or talk to him and I'm just like. Oh, dang it, man. The way he handles himself now and how sweet of a man he is, mm-hmm. the stress that was caused every day over there with that job. I'm not saying that any of them are more important than the next, but like you said, these guys are fighting. They're in firefights and then they're turning around and operating, stitching people up, putting garments on, putting bandages on, saving people's lives yeah. or burying people and putting flags on their casket. Yeah. Freaking egg, yeah, man. It's crazy. So, Joey, if you're listening, I love you, brother. Brian, I love you. Thank you so much for what you do for our country t- still today, training our future fighter pilots. What Rachel does. Yeah. Finney flight in January. Yeah. This is only part two, part four. It might go part five. I mean, we haven't even gotten into this commercial <laughs> part. Uh, when Brian comes back, we're going to talk about his second deployment in our United States Air Force and his transition into the United States Navy as a fighter pilot in an F-16. It's amazing what these guys do. Do some research on the F-16, on our fighter pilots, the missions, and what they do, the training. Let's get some other of our young generation Americans involved and interested in this type because I'm what I'm hearing, we need them right now. Yeah. We need them. Yeah. We need them in the Air Force. We need them in the Navy. We need soldiers. We need military personnel in all branches and arms of the military. Chad Belding, this life ain't for everybody. Brian, any closing words? I I got nothing, man. Thank you. Beer 30. Yeah. Thank you so much for the story today. (laughs) Absolutely. I didn't know I was going to get that emotional, but you have every right to be emotional after what you pulled off. I mean, that is amazing. Amazing guys. Brian Moore, this life ain't for everybody. Tom, please hit that button. Leith Lofton written by Leith Lofton and Drake White. What you going to do when the money's all gone. Thank you guys so much. I'd rather be poor living off in a hole than rich as hell without a soul. Life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do when the money's all gone? Say life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do when the money's all gone?